Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Parenting Aces radio show on Blog Talk Radio's UR Tennis Network. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and we've got another great show for you this week. This week's interview is being pre-recorded, so I will just give you that heads up, and um, I hope you guys enjoy it. I've got a very interesting guest today. John Falbo is joining us on the air, and John is a former top junior, uh, played college tennis, played uh, beyond college, and then stepped away from the game for several years and has since sort of made his way back in and is starting to really um, become a, a spokesperson for the sport again, but in a way that's unusual from the other spokespeople that may be out there. So I'm going to leave it at that and let John speak for himself when I bring him on the air, but I hope you'll join me in welcoming John Falvo to the show. John, let me get you on the air here. Let's see if we can make this happen. Uh, having a little technical issue. Oh, there we go. John, you there with us? I'm with you, Lisa, and thank you for having me. Thank you. So I mentioned in the intro you were a top junior player, but, I mean, saying you were a top junior player is kind of like saying, you know, whatever, <laughs> bananas and yellow. <laughs> um, you... You had a pretty amazing junior career, and so I'd love to start the conversation by just having you kind of give a rundown of your accomplishments in junior tennis and talk a little bit about where your mindset was as you were coming up through the juniors in terms of what you wanted out of your tennis and how your family may or may not have helped you get there. Okay. Okay. And I'll I'll attempt to do it in as non-boring a fashion as possible because I always I listen to people run down their stats and I think like really is there is there no other way to punch list this out than than this so I'll I'll see if I can do it in somewhat of an entertaining way um but you know when you when you grow up playing and you commit you commit your resources you commit your your mind your body your spirit uh your game time uh, to be in the best you can be, you you develop a connection with the sport that I don't I, I believe that's always with you. And so as as we were growing up, there was there were a group of guys that had this kind of commitment. And um, when you're ten, eleven, twelve, and you're playing against Andre and you're playing against Pete and you're playing against Michael and you're playing against Jim and you're playing against Malavia and Todd Martin and John Stark and Jared Palmer and Jeff Tarango and we can continue to go on and on and on and you have this kind of depth and this is the first tier I mean there's like four or five tiers to this uh, of guys that would just push and push and push and there's no way, really, if you stay in it, not to get better. And so by the time we were, say, 16, it was very evident. I believe at that point, guys like McEnroe and Connors, uh, Lendl, were some of the best in the world. By the time we were 15, 16, there was no question in our mind that we were going to be uh I don't say that arrogantly. I say that from just watching results at the time, you know? And so, so for instance, coming up and uh, winning Kalamazoo with Andre in doubles and winning it in singles, when the backdraw, the consolation is, the finals of the consolation is uh, Jim Courier and Andre. That's the <laughs> consolation. You know, and wow. you're going through this, yeah, and and you're seeing and you're you're seeing you're seeing guys lose in the fourth round and the round of sixteen in the quarters, coming back through the back draw. You're seeing guys then go out and take Lendl to three sets the same year, or uh, 
have McEnroe beat, and the only reason they don't beat him is because of the obvious nerves that are there because of the perception that, you know, he's been on TV, et cetera. So, you know, as as you're growing up and playing and, and being one of the top three, four, five in the country and in the world at what you're doing, and you're trying to assess, like, where's my where's my spot in this? I've dedicated my life to this. First of all, how am I going to make money at it? And second of all, how am I going to continue to do something that I love? And you have you have all of these different variables that you're trying to assess at the same time you're developing your game. So, you know, once we're And this we're was all 16, happening when you were, sorry, this is all happening in your middle teens. Right, right. And it's not just with one person. It's at our, our Junior Davis Cup, Andre turned pro in 86, in April of 86. And I remember we bunked together at, at Boletari's. And uh, I was never a big fan of Nick's place. I thought it was extremely military-like. I thought it was, you know, if somebody tells me I can't have chocolate chip cookies that my mom made, I'm like, you know, get out of here. Like, I don't, mm. I'm going to eat my chocolate chip cookies. And when when players like Raffaella Reggie, who was top 30 in the country from Italy at that time, and Terry Phelps from New York, who was top 30 in the world in the pro women's, when they have to sneak me in Dairy Queen blizzards to my room, because because people are constantly watching, then I, I, I get a little uneasy with that. I'm like, you know, I'm not I'm not a part of 1984. I'm not a part of like mm-hmm. like tennis. Tennis has never been fascist to me. Tennis has always mm-hmm. been a real a real creative outlet to me. So, but for the short time I was there at Boletari's, um, Andre and I bunked together, and the day after he received his contract offer from Nike. And I remember exactly what it was for. I remember exactly the time term of it. Uh, I remember exactly the process of it. And the thing I remember the most is him sticking his head over the, over the bunk. He was in the top bunk, sticking his head over the bunk as I was laying there and saying, what do you think? You know, should I do it? And I remember talking and I remember the the question, you know, I don't, I know I'm good enough, but I still don't know if I should do it. It's a big step. And my comment was direct. You, as you and I know one another better, Lisa, you'll see that's the only way I am. I don't, I don't, I don't care to be any other way than direct. And my, my comment was very direct. It was, of course, at this point, we're all better than McEnroe. We're all as good or better than Lendl. We're all as good or better than Connors. And we know that. So why wouldn't you do it? You've got the money. You've got the gifts. You've got the desire. The only reason you wouldn't do it is because you're too scared. So within, I think it was a week, 10 days, he started playing. And with with him playing... At that, and that summer, he got to the semifinals of a tournament in Stratton Mountain, Vermont. It, they used to have it. It was, uh, it was like a, a prelude to the Open. Mm-hmm. And he beat guys in the top 50 in the world. Uh, I don't re- recall who he lost to in the semis. It may have been McEnroe. Um, but it was just... Love Talk Radio. Love Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Parenting Aces radio show on Blog Talk Radio's You Are Tennis Network. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and we've got another great show for you this week. This week's interview is being pre-recorded, so I will just give you that heads up, and um, I hope you guys enjoy it. I've got a very interesting guest today. John Falbo is joining us on the air, and John is a former top junior Uh, played college tennis, played uh, beyond college, and then stepped away from the game for several years and has since sort of made his way back in and is starting to really um, become a, a spokesperson for the sport again, but in a way that's unusual from the other spokespeople that may be out there. So, 
I'm going to leave it at that and let John speak for himself when I bring him on the air, but I hope you'll join me in welcoming John Falvo to the show. John, let me get you on the air here. Let's see if we can make this happen. Uh, having a little technical issue. Oh, there we go. John, you there with us? I'm with you, Lisa, and thank you for having me. Thank you. So I mentioned in the intro you were a top junior player, but, I mean, saying you were a top junior player is kind of like saying, you know, whatever, <laughs> bananas and yellow. <laughs> um, you, you had a pretty amazing junior career, and so I'd love to start the conversation by just having you kind of give a rundown of your accomplishments in junior tennis and talk a little bit about where your mindset was as you were coming up through the juniors in terms of what you wanted out of your tennis and how your family may or may not have helped you get there. Okay. Okay. And I'll, I'll attempt to do it in as non-boring a fashion as possible because I always I listen to people run down their stats and I think, like, really, is there is there no other way to punch list this out than than this? So I'll I'll see if I can do it in somewhat of an entertaining way. Um, but you know, when you when you grow up playing, and you commit you commit your resources, you commit your your mind, your body, your spirit, uh, your game time uh, to being the best you can be. You you develop a connection with the sport that I don't, I, I believe that's always with you. And so as, as we were growing up, there was, there were a group of guys that had this kind of commitment. And, um, when you're 10, 11, 12, and you're playing against Andre and you're playing against Pete and you're playing against Michael and you're playing against Jim and you're playing against Malavia and Todd Martin, and John Stark, and Jared Palmer, and Jeff Tarango, and we can continue to go on and on and on, and you have this kind of depth, and this is the first tier. I mean, there's like four or five tiers to this uh, of guys that would just push and push and push, and there's no way really, if you stay in it, not to get better. And so by the time we were, say, 16... It was very evident. I believe at that point, guys like McEnroe and Connors, uh, Lendl, were some of the best in the world. By the time we were 15, 16, there was no question in our mind that we were going to be, uh, I don't say that arrogantly, I say that from just watching results at the time, you know? And so, so for instance, coming up and, uh, winning Kalamazoo with Andre in doubles and winning it in singles. When the backdraw, the consolation, is the finals of the consolation is uh, Jim Courier and Andre. That's the <laughs> consolation, you know. And wow. you're going through this, yeah. And, and you're seeing and you're you're seeing you're seeing guys lose in the fourth round and the round of 16 in the quarters coming back through the back draw you're seeing guys then go out and take Lendl to three sets the same year or uh, have McEnroe beat and the only reason they don't beat him is because of the obvious nerves that are there because of the perception that you know he's been on TV etc so you know as, as you're growing up and playing and and being one of the top three, four, five in the country and in the world at what you're doing and you're trying to assess like where's my where's my spot in this? I've dedicated my life to this. First of all, how am I going to make money at it? And second of all, how am I going to continue to do something that I love? And you have you have all of these different variables that you're trying to assess at the same time you're developing your game. So you know, once and this we're was all 16, happening when you were, sorry, this is all happening in your middle teens. Right, right. And it's not just with one person. It's our, our Junior Davis Cup, Andre turned pro in 86, in April of 86. And I remember we bunked together at, at Boletari's. 
and uh, I was never a big fan of Nick's place. I thought it was extremely military-like. I thought it was, you know, if somebody tells me I can't have chocolate chip cookies that my mom made, I'm like, you know, get out of here. Like, I don't, mm. I'm going to eat my chocolate chip cookies. And when when players like Raffaella Reggie, who was top 30 in the country from Italy at that time, and Terry Phelps from New York, who was top 30 in the world in the pro women's, when they have to sneak me in Dairy Queen blizzards to my room, because because people are constantly watching, then I, I, I get a little uneasy with that. I'm like, you know, I'm not I'm not a part of 1984. I'm not a part of like mm-hmm. like tennis. Tennis has never been fascist to me. Tennis has always mm-hmm. been a real a real creative outlet to me. So, but for the short time I was there at Boletari's, um, Andre and I bunked together, and the day after he received his contract offer from Nike. And I remember exactly what it was for. I remember exactly the time term of it. Uh, I remember exactly the process of it. And the thing I remember the most is him sticking his head over the, over the bunk. He was in the top bunk, sticking his head over the bunk as I was laying there and saying, what do you think? You know, should I do it? And I remember talking and I remember the the question, you know, I don't, I know I'm good enough, but I still don't know if I should do it. It's a big step. And my comment was direct. As you and I know one another better, Lisa, you'll see that's the only way I am. I don't, I don't, I don't care to be any other way than direct. And my, my comment was very direct. It was, of course, at this point, we're all better than McEnroe. We're all as good or better than Lendl. We're all as good or better than Connors. And we know that. So why wouldn't you do it? You've got the money. You've got the gifts. You've got the desire. The only reason you wouldn't do it is because you're too scared. So within, I think it was a week, 10 days, he started playing. And with with him playing... At that, and that summer, he got to the semifinals of a tournament in Stratton Mountain, Vermont. It, they used to have it. It was, uh, it was like a, a prelude to the Open. Mm-hmm. And he beat guys in the top 50 in the world. Uh, I don't re- recall who he lost to in the semis. It may have been McEnroe. Um, but it was just confirmation to all of us at that point that, yeah, this is, this is what's coming around the corner. And I, I told a story today to the Kansas women's team where part of our perk on being the, on the junior Davis cup team was supposed to be to be able to practice with guys like Lendl and McEnroe, et cetera. And we were practicing one time in Cincinnati and it, it wasn't with McEnroe, but he was right there in presence. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, like I, I've never cared for John and and he's he's he can be extremely extremely nasty to people when he wants to be. And he was giving us that kind of nastiness, like you don't deserve to be on the same court with us, etc. And and I can remember immediately, immediately, like Jim and Pete were were probably ten feet away, and I can remember immediately saying, "Look, man, with the kind of backhand you got, you'll be lucky to win a slam after 90. You'll be lucky to win a slam after 90 because because our group is going to dominate you. It's going to dominate you. And you may not want to see it right now, but it's going to dominate you. Because I knew, I knew immediately, I knew that, that that generation through the 80s had the one-handed backhand for the most part. They chipped. They, they hit second-rate serves for second serves. They, they were doing all these things and getting away with them. And they were doing things that guys like Jim and Andre and Pete, uh, Michael, all of us, Todd, they were, we'd take the second serve and just bust it by them. And so there was, there was this change of power going on. And, and within a four, five, six-year period, all it was going to take was for our guys to get in there in 87, 88, 89, start to get their feet wet and get used to the hype of it all. And then the true games would come out the true skills would come out. 
and I knew the true skills were superior. So I hope that's a little more educational and entertaining and for your audience in terms of, you know, with me coming up and, and being one of the best in the country and the world, representing the country on that kind of Davis Cup team where you had literally, I think it was five number one in the world's, on that team, and I think it was 23 or 24 Grand Slam titles on that Junior Davis Cup team. Um, you you get this you get this sense of competitiveness, and you can probably hear it in my voice. Uh, that is, uh, it's very matter of fact. You know, it's like, look, this is the situation. Either we have the goods or we don't. And in coming up, we knew that that our group had the goods. And interestingly, though, John, you went the college route. Yeah, well, I did because I had to. <laughs> I, I had to. Maybe that's the reason that? you segued with that, <laughs> with that yeah. idea. Well, my, if you're asking me about my situation and, and what differentiated it, um, by 1980, let's see, by 1988, Andre was in the top five in the world. Uh, by 89, Michael had won the French Open. By 90, Pete had won the U.S. Open. And right after that, Jim won the uh, French in Australia. So basically by 1990, everybody was pretty firmly entrenched, and then Todd and Malavia came right after that. And I think, let's see, in, in 85, when I won Kalamazoo, with Andre in doubles and in singles, I'm Italian. And if you look back at who Jim signed with, he signed with Diodora in his first contract. Pete signed with Takini in his first contract. Between those two, Alese and Lotto, um, as well as Fila, you've got, you've got a really core group of Italian companies there that love young Americans and they love just young tennis growing up. They, that's if you look at like even a lot of the players today, you'll see the Italian companies a lot of times go with youth and they go with, uh, they go with vibrancy to promote their brand, you know? Mm -hmm. And so being Italian, being 16 and being uh, for two weeks, I was number one in the world for the rest of the time. I was number two or three in the world uh, that year. So no one had really signed contracts yet. Andres was the first, you know, and if memory serves, it was, it was about a uh, hundred thousand or so for two years. And if you wow. can believe that. And <laughs> big difference from today. Right. Right. And, and as opposed to when, after our guys had really entrenched themselves, there were guys coming afterwards in the mid nineties, and beyond uh, that were signing million dollar contracts and they had been unproven. Uh, but, but the way that the different agencies, et cetera, would promote them is, Hey, this is the next Andre, or this is the next Pete, or this is the next so-and-so. So we didn't have really the next um, we had, they could have said the next McEnroe, but they were shy about that because, you know, he was a little touchy from day one. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. uh, and and so so the contra my contracts would have been Italian in in nature. Uh they would have been not extremely lucrative, but they certainly would have been in the six figures at that point. And they would have been bigger than say Andre's at not with Nike. Because Nike was still you know, they were they were taking a chance and they didn't have the same vested interest as say an Italian company that wanted to promote through Europe and focus in on on that sort of uh what do you say uh maybe cultural uh niche mm -hmm. so so it was obvious to me that that's something that could be done at that point and and we explored that and our family in West Virginia is an Italian family and they've been our family originates in in near Sicily in Calabria Italy and we've been in the scrap and precious metal business for over 50 years in this country and over 500 years in Europe. Wow. And so the question was, 
was, is this best not only for the tennis, but is this best for the family? Because my responsibility growing up was not only tennis. When I was about nine, my uncle sat me down, and they called it the tennis stuff. That was the way they called it. They said, if you're going to do this tennis stuff, then you have to make a commitment to us because you're the one in the family with the, the most drive. You're the one that, that I don't, we don't care how young you are. This is your responsibility that you're the next generation that's going to keep this business thriving. So you have to make the commitment to us to learn this business inside and out if you want to do the tennis stuff. <laughs> and, I, and I love tennis, and I felt I had a gift at it, and I, I loved it so much that that's the agreement that I made at a very early age. And I could have never, I could have never gone out and, you know, tennis is, you know, you, you tennis is expensive. Yes. yes. And you know, all the tournaments, the equipment, the, the, all the, all the training, it's expensive. And there's no way I could have done what I did without their support. So I made that agreement early on. And with our family, loyalty is incredibly important. It's probably the number one asset. And when I got to be 16, it wasn't just a matter of uh, is it best for tennis because it was best for my tennis to go ahead and turn. It was best for me to turn in December of that year right after the Orange Bowl. Um, but And that would have been before Andre in April. But the family decided that it was that I was going to need to wait and it wasn't it wasn't there was no way to argue for me to argue i would have had to go outside the family i would have had to go independent with an agency like img or at that time advantage with uh, donald dell um or i'm sorry ProServe with donald dell out of washington uh, or advantage was still there at that time um and that's just i wasn't i wasn't going to make that choice because had it not been for them had it not been for my family, I wouldn't have been where I was in the first place. So we, so I didn't really play a ton from in 17 and 18 and took a lot of criticism from the USTA, took a lot of criticism from many of what I considered pseudo coaches at that point uh, about not playing. But my point to them was, you guys haven't been in the running for three hundred to $500,000 worth of contracts. I've already done – I've already – I've already achieved the pinnacle in this arena. I'm still developing my game. I'm still playing other events. I'm not going to endanger my position when I'm 18 because you guys get a, a wild hair, if you will, and uh, have some sort of theory. You know, when you have a half a million dollars on the line, I want to see what you do. And so I wasn't scared to play. I wasn't scared. Of, I've never been scared to compete with anyone. I was assessing my balance sheet. I was assessing my future in the sport. And so for the next two years until I was 18, there was very little play on my part in the juniors. And if people look at what Venus and Serena did, they played almost no juniors. Mm -hmm. When they were with Rick, you know, they were positioning themselves constantly with Rick Macy and with a few other people. They were positioning, positioning, positioning. Uh, we were doing the same thing. Uh, except, you know, there was, and you, you remember how much uh, flack they caught about it. Well, we caught 10 times the amount of flack. And I always felt it was out of jealousy. So you, so we went, I went until 18 and we assessed contracts then. Now, by that time, by 18, Andre was already in the top 50 in the world. And, uh, Jim and Pete, we were we were competing. Guys would come down to Boletari's or guys would come down to Saddlebrook where I was with Jared Palmer. Guys would come down in the top 50 in the world, and we would be beating them consistently. We would be beating them over and over and over again. And so the agents and the different people knew, hey, this, this crop coming up is going to be, has a very good chance of being dominant because they just come down and watch. And at at 18, I remember a meeting very specifically. Uh, there was a gentleman named Bill Shelton, who was Andre's uh, manager at the time. He was his business manager. And we were at, at Kalamazoo. 
And he looked across the counter at me, and there were some guys around us, and he just looked at me and he said, look, what do you want to do? Because you know what Andre's done, you know the money's there, what do you want to do? And the guys around me were like, you know, they were jealous, and and they weren't the top tier guys. They were like, well, he hasn't played, he's not even ranked. How? Do... And I remember Bill looking at him very plainly, very businesslike, and saying, fellas, Number one, he can play. Number two, he's attached in a way with Andre that you guys will never be. So the the money is there. And if the money's wow. there, yeah, if the money's there, then the time will be there. And if the time is there, are you telling me if he has two or three years, he's not going to make it? And everybody looked at one another and said, of course he's going to make it. He said, the money's there. And so if the money's there, everything else will fall into place. And so the rest of the guys left the counter, and he and I talked for another 15, 20 minutes. And I went back to the hotel room, and I, I called my dad. And I said, look, this is the situation. There's between three and 500000 a year on the table right now. And this is, what, this is what I'm faced with. This was at Kalamazoo in my second year of 18s. Uh, I think Andre played Vlander the exhibition that year at Kalamazoo. And we had probably an hour talk. And he said I don't I don't think I don't think the family is going to be in favor of it. I can tell you right now. And he apologized yeah. profusely. I mean, I was damn near crying because I'm like, "Look, I've I've worked my butt off." For this, I'm in position. We've played this strategically enormously well. I've been since eight. It's been ten years of grinding, of playing, of taking my lumps, of listening to everybody tell me I couldn't do it. Because I'm really not. As we get to know one another better, you, you and you see the footage on my Facebook page. You'll see I'm I'm not incredibly athletic. I just work. I just work, and. And I feel like I have a gift with my feel, you know, but in terms of mm -hmm. like hitting those overheads that Pete used to hit and running and hitting like Andre and knocking balls through people and, and running like Michael and having, having the kind of stamina that Jim had, these kind of gifts endurance wise, I just work Lisa. And that was what I had done. And so when you get to that kind of tipping point, if you will, and you feel like you don't have control of it, it's it's disturbing. <laughs> it's disturbing. And I can so only imagine. That night, yeah, yeah, not to mention that, you know, that, that's money for the rest of your life. Right. And no matter how you do, uh, no matter how you do as a pro, and I, I really, I should say this, I really believe I don't, I, I wouldn't have been in the top 10 or 20 in the world in singles. I don't feel like my gifts were of that nature. I think I think top 100 was reasonable, um, but I saw my skills in doubles, and, and I saw my skills really being able to be one of the best doubles players in the world. And and so, and, and you know, that was just the reality of it, because by the time everybody got to 22, 23, 24, adult athleticism was in full play, you know? And right. some of the things, yeah, some of the things these guys were doing, you know, if if Michael Jordan uh, makes a pass and outthinks someone on defense or steals the ball, you can say, well, he he intelligently outmaneuvered them. But when he takes the ball from the foul line and he jumps over everybody and dunks it, you say, well, that's really a different kind of realm there. Like I don't, I don't have that. <laughs> I don't have that. And, and 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 when when you you know how when you'd be watching Pete and he would they'd run him to the forehand side and he would turn on the boosters and he'd want him to hit there and he'd go and he'd knock a winner off the forehand um, mm -hmm. or he'd jump he would jump you know he would jump high enough to easily dunk and spike an overhead you know um, where Michael would run from literally one diagonal end of the court to the other and get a drop shot and be able to make a play to win the point. And these kind of things, if, if you're honest with yourself, you say either I have them or I don't have them. And I did not have them. 
I have I have what I feel is very good mental strength, and I have I have very good feel and hands around the court. Um, but I didn't have athletically what it would take, where like a Monfils around the court, where when he's running or when Djokovic is running, you know, you you have just a different layer of athleticism there. Right. Um, so in, 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 in having that conversation to bring it back around that night and speaking with my father, he talked to my uncles and he said, John, I'm sorry. There's just no, there's no way. There's no way. And you have to learn more about the business. Uh, you're going to have to go to school. You're going to have to, uh, you're going to have to mature in a way that will allow you to do what we need you to do in addition to what you want to do. So your college question in a roundabout, long-winded kind of way, I went because of my loyalty to my family. And um, each day I was there, each week I was there, especially because the shelf life at that point, past 20, and your shelf life is deteriorating in terms of contracts. So I knew 18, 19, 20, yeah, I might have a bit more of a grace period, but after 20, I knew my dollars were going down, 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 down. So that was, that was my choice to go to college. It wasn't, it, it was, it was out of loyalty to my family. If that answers your question. It does, but I mean, what an incredibly difficult decision to make at age 18. And, you know, I'm just wondering, did you have any resentment towards your family for taking you away from something that you would work so hard to earn? Well, I would answer that two ways. Um, at at the very start, yes, I was pissed. That's the only way to say it. I was, <laughs> yeah. I was so angry. I was so angry. And, uh, and angry enough to to take time out of college the first semester and go back to West Virginia and call a meeting. If you can imagine an 18-year-old trying to call a meeting with 50- and 60-year-old businessmen uh, that have been running the business for 40-some, almost 50-odd years, um, angry enough to say, look, this is what I've sacrificed monetarily. There's going to be compensation here in some way to be compensation because what you're requiring of me came from me. And so if, if I was in a position where there was no reward on my end, Hey, I would be grateful for this opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. You're asking me to give up X amount of dollars for X amount of years. Let's talk about compensation. Let's have a, let's have a discussion about compensation through the business. Because if I'm going to be learning this business, and ultimately, once I was in my 20s, I, I helped the family make more money in 10 years than they had made the previous 50. And that's, that's not easy. You know, that's, that's, that was a feat to be able to do that. And that came from learning the business all the way from when I was 9 and 10 years old. But my point to them is, don't ask me to give this kind of money up and this kind of opportunity was something that I love. And what I'm, I'm like, I, I would always be amused at college when the coach would say, well, you're getting an education. I was like, okay, I'm not denying that. Like I'm not bagging on an education at college, but I had my education the 10 years before I got to college. So what they're going to teach me here, that's fine. I'm sure it will add to my education. But to me, that opportunity was if I was paying for it, I would be giving hard money to a college and be getting a soft promise in return for a job or in return for increased income or, or in return for experiences that I wasn't really interested in having. Because to, to achieve what our group achieved, there's a certain, I don't want to say it's a mercenary-like quality. I don't want to go that far with it. But there's certainly a a certain quality that's very hardcore that assesses strengths, weaknesses, balance sheet opportunities, and then makes very tough choices very deeply, if you can say it that way. And and so 
yeah, I was I was extremely angry at first. Through the course over the next six months or so, we worked something out where I was I felt like I was compensated from the family business, and then we worked out a time a timeline because that was part of my compensation. Like, look, if I'm there past twenty, this is what I'm this is what I'm giving up in terms of opportunity cost of playing. You know, because every every month you're not out on tour with the guys, you're falling behind. And and I think Andre said one time, every year in college, you sacrifice two years out on the tour. I think that was the quote. And I don't necessarily agree, but it's not it's not far from the truth. And so, you know, you you give up this time where you're you're having to be in really pressure packed situations, and you're having to discover how to win and what your game is and what you do best, and what to eliminate, and really figuring out just how to win. Because I don't care what any coach says, they can't tell you how to win out there. When you're out grinding and you're out playing some of the best athletes and some of the best minds in the world, you got to figure it out. Nobody can tell you how to do that, you know. And so every month you're right. not out there figuring it out, you know, you're you're essentially neutral or falling behind. So and so, you yeah, felt established... like you could... sorry, I, I don't Go... mean to interrupt, but I'm sorry. you felt like you couldn't get that in college. No, no, because um, because the 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 competitive environment is wonderful in college. With a team, it has different dynamics. Uh, it's still always an individual sport, but. You know, you get team camaraderie. You get you get all kinds of different benefits. Um, but at the end of the day, and you know now it's the training facilities are even better than they were, so you get things paid for. Uh, you're able to travel and compete. So for certain for certain types of players at certain points in their career, you know, if they're looking to if they're looking to get free training and free competition and uh, camaraderie and development, some coaching for three, four years and develop that way and take a slower route, um, then that, that makes a lot more sense. For, for our group, we were, we, were ready to, we were ready to roll by 15, 16, 17. And so anything less than going out and playing and competing with the best guys was going to be uh, it was going to be a disincentive, if we can use that word. It wasn't going to be. It wasn't going to going to incentivize or motivate us. It was going to be uh, more of a disincentive, more of a say, look, okay, I'm going to do what I can here, but I've always got my eye on the prize. And and every 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 moment that I lose being out there because the contracts were there, because the money was there. Every moment I lose, I'm losing time. So for most of the players that attend college, contracts aren't there for them, and money is not there for them. They're not having to make the decision to sign for X amount of hundreds of thousands of dollars. So the, the, the trade-off makes sense because they're getting money to come, they're getting food, they're getting training, they're getting travel, they're getting... But when when you're faced at 15, 16, 17, 18 with the fact, okay, look, I've already got my money, I've already got my means to be out there and do what I love to do, then the incentive of college is, it, it becomes a second-tier choice at that point. Now, I might mm -hmm. get criticized for saying that, because a lot of people in this country feel like college is the be-all, end-all. And I'm, I don't have anything against college. For me, it wasn't the right fit. I see, you know, for 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 plenty of guys, for plenty of guys, it's the right fit. But when you're talking about that hardcore of a group, and when you're talking about that that kind of a situation, it wasn't going to be the right fit. You know, if if it was, Todd would have stayed all four years. If it was, Malavia would have stayed all four years. If it was, more people would have gone, and and they simply did not, you know. So there's always 
you know, there's a big push with the USTA about college. Uh, there's a big push with a lot of people about college. And for, for a lot of people, it's the right choice. If you don't have your money lined up, if you don't have the kind of results or the kind of, uh, the kind of resources lined up to say, hey, pro is an option. Like I listened to a great interview you did with uh, Eric. Uh, I say his name, Budorak. I don't know if that's the mm-hmm. proper pronunciation. But I he, think so. he's, he's, he's done wonderful uh, articles and had wonderful interviews, and he came up in a different way too, you know. And for, for a player like that, he, his college was right on the money for him because there was no money waiting on him. There was no choice like that. And then he used college and the training and the maturity process, and then he did a, a really great thing going over to Europe and playing for money. And, you know, he's become one of the best in the world at his craft. So you, I'm not bagging on college, and I'm not saying college is the wrong way to go. There's plenty of guys that have, you know, Patrick McEnroe went, uh, I believe, all four years at Stanford. And I played him in exhibition after his fourth year, if I'm not mistaken. And he really hadn't improved that much his fourth year from his first year. But he took a different path than John. And he ended up, I think that year, the year later, went in the French Open in doubles with Jim Grab. He was one of the best players in the world in doubles. It was it was right for him. But he wasn't going to compete like John for Grand Slam titles and singles. He wasn't going to he wasn't going to compete on that top tier for tens and sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars in a career. So I think I, I think it it depends if that answers your question. And to to kind of I, I feel like I didn't answer the original one, which is why college. You know why college? And yes, it could have done me good. And I worked. I've developed my body in training. We had a great strength and conditioning coach. I did everything I could to improve my game. But when I'm, when I'm sitting in a room with my dad in April of 88 and we're watching on TV, we're watching Andre beat a player named Slobodan Zibojinovic from then Yugoslavia, who was top 20 in the world at the time. I think he got semis or finals of Wimbledon one year. And we're watching Andre beat him in the finals of the national clay courts. And I've just come off the court winning the big eight singles, doubles, and team championships. I'm sitting there looking at, as a freshman, and, you know, I'm having people come up to me and say, hey, this is historic. Nobody's ever done this. This is unbelievable. I'm sitting there with my dad, alone with my dad, watching Andre beat Zivinovic, saying, why in the hell am I here? Hmm. Why why am I here? This is a nice achievement, sure. But is this what I trained for? Is this what I trained for all these years and to have this kind of opportunity be passing me by? Why am I here? And you know, when you're that age, you're very you're still very immature. I didn't I didn't understand what my uncle saw for me. I didn't understand what they saw me ultimately being responsible for. I didn't understand a lot of things. You just start thinking, hey, I've got this opportunity. I've worked for it. And all I can see is being kept from it. I'm curious how you stayed motivated to work on your tennis while you were in college. Because, I mean, it sounds like it's, you know, by the time you were there, you already recognized that the professional opportunities were going to be gone when you got out of school. So why continue to work hard at the tennis? Well, when you asked me the question a minute ago, I said there were two parts, and you brought up now the second part. Um, They weren't going to be gone. They were going to be diminished if I stayed because because they're – the family's goals for me was to stay all four years. That was their goal for me, and that was what I had to lock into. And so you're right from the standpoint, if I look at 22, they weren't going to be gone because every time one of the guys did well, it was only going to enhance my position. 
But at the same time, I was getting older. And so no matter what I achieved the first couple years, the only thing I think I didn't achieve that I wanted to achieve those first two years was to win the NCAA title. I beat plenty of guys that won the that that ended up winning. There's four. There were four major championships when I was in college. I beat plenty of guys that won those championships, but I never actually won the NCAA's. So after my sophomore year, I was motivated until then. The first the first two years, I was like, look, I still got a shot at this. You know, when I'm even though I was <laughs> even though I was dismayed. And I wasn't buying all the propaganda that being an All-American in college and being this and being that. I was like, look, I've got, I've got bigger fish to fry here. Like, that's all nice. But everything I'm doing, I'm thinking, how is this improving my game? How is this improving my fitness? And how is this improving my contract position? Because no matter what anybody says, if you don't have the money out there, you can't go and play. So I right. knew I needed the skills. I need, you know, I knew I needed the skills, I knew I needed the fitness, and I knew I needed the money. So those those first two years, I wasn't necessarily enhancing like I would have been had I turned professional, but I was still enhancing my position because the whole time I was getting fitter and the whole time I was getting stronger and developing certain parts of my game that I needed, the guys were doing very well out on tour. So... I felt like my position, even though it wasn't enhancing exponentially, it was still enhancing. So the motivation was there the first two years. Now, after the the second year, unexpectedly to me, my family came and said, look, it's about time where it's okay for you to go. And there was a year period there of real flux. There was a year period of very much uncertainty from from pretty much the beginning of my junior year, summer of my sophomore year, until the beginning of my senior year. So I had this year of flux there, and it was it was extremely difficult. Now, that at that time, it was very difficult motivationally because what you have is you're turning from 20 to 21, so shelf life is dropping off a cliff from a contract point of view. Um, you're having uncertainty in terms of your responsibilities to the team, you know, because even though it wasn't my preference, I was still, I wanted to win for myself, for the coach, for the team. You know, they they had invested in me. So just from a responsibility point of view, you want to win. So that year, right before, and I left school during that year, uh, at the end of that that cyclical year period didn't necessarily fall at the beginning of a school year, but we determined that, hey, it was time, it was time for me to go. So, and the family, with the family's graces. So during that year period was the most trouble motivationally. And I don't really know what to tell you how I dealt with it because it was such a struggle. I didn't really gain weight. I didn't really become unfit. I didn't really like, I didn't stop playing. I was still playing. But, you know, kind of as you're progressing, like neutral becomes falling back, you know? Mm-hmm. So if, you, if you're not working your way forward and really motivated and really incentivized and really inspired, if you're neutral, you're pretty much falling back because everybody that was where you are is moving forward. Right. So if you're not moving forward, you're essentially falling back. And so, so at the end of that period when I did leave, I ended up getting the contracts. I got I signed I believe it was with Mizuno and K Swiss at that point. And they were still very good contracts. They were very good contracts. They were more than Andre got when he first turned. But that's, you know, 91 around I believe the negotiation period was was the end of 90 to almost 92. It took almost a year in terms of negotiation. And because Mizuno was a Japanese company, you know, those can be fairly lucrative. And, and we, you know, you, you have Italian companies that are still interested. And so we still, it was still a reasonable situation where it provided me plenty of money to go out and play. It provided me in a way that was good, but it was nothing like what was there in 
uh, 88, 89, 90, and especially being 21 versus 16 to 19, if you will. So mm-hmm. I still had, I, I still knew that the, that money was there. I still knew that, that, that I could have an opportunity there, but, but that year in there, that was extremely difficult. And I don't know that I found a way to be quite candid with you. I don't know that I found a way to be motivated. I don't know how you do when, when you feel like the trade is, is that off and that lopsided. But I just tried every day to say, look, I still have got a shot at this. Uh, I'm still going to be reasonably compensated. Um, I felt terribly behind, you know, results-wise. Um, and so you try to deal with that on a daily basis. Mentally, that's difficult, especially when you're watching guys on TV. <laughs> you're, you're, right. And you're, you know, you're, you're suffering at that point. You're suffering achievement-wise. You feel like you're not achieving what you need to be. You, you know you're suffering financially. You're suffering psychologically. Uh, just through um, saying, hey, you know, at that age, is my path the right path for me? And why why am I not on that other path? And wh- what's what's going on here? Trying to, you know, understand and make, make sense out of the whole thing. But at that so, point, you still wanted to be out there. You still wanted to be on the tour. I did. I did. Okay. I did, and 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 I had a little different situation in that I had my family and and that whole thing, and then the business. I had my tennis, and when I came to school, one of the caveats that my family had said to me is, "Look, because none of them went to college. Okay, none of them. My dad, my dad was actually the only one." that ventured into college and he went when he was 15. So he was done with high school at 14 and wow. he took a year. Yeah. And that, cause back then, back in, you know, it was right after, right before, and it was during the depression mm-hmm. and it was, he had me very late. He had me when he was 45. Mm-hmm. So, uh, my mother was 20 years younger than he was. So she was 25 and he was 45. And they had been through the Depression. Uh, they had been through World War II. Um, they had been through enormously trying times. Uh, eight of them, eight of the kids, had slept in a one-bedroom house on dirt floors in the 20s, 1920s. So mm-hmm. he came from he came from extremely difficult times, and you know. <laughs> the whole the whole mindset behind the business was one of look you're either tough enough to do it or you're not we don't want to hear any excuses and i i had probably 15 or 16 cousins that couldn't handle the pressure of the business they just they wouldn't they they didn't want to deal with it cuz they were born at a different time my uncles would say they were too soft. I did, I knew it was not only that they were a little softer, but they just didn't want that kind of responsibility. And I, I never blamed them for that. You you know, different people, it's a different fit. So you have you have a situation where I've got that responsibility and I've got the responsibility of my own business with the tennis because that's essentially a business at that point. Well, there are the requirement of me in going to school because none of them went to college. And then my dad went and and came out for the business after he had gone in. They said, look, we don't feel that they're going to teach you what's necessary for you to be in the real world. We feel like they're going to give you a bunch of theory. And that's fine. You should take that in and learn everything you can from it. But in addition to this business and in addition to your tennis, you're required to start a small company and run the business in college because you will learn more from that business than you will learn in any business class you take. Even if you fail in the business, you have to do that. 
so I had a very different situation in that by 21, I had their business that I was very familiar with at that point, which is, was becoming my own. I had the tennis opportunity, and then I had another small business that was netting probably, let's see, let me recall, well, it was in excess of 50000 a year. Your so time I would have skills must be through the roof. Well, I didn't. I didn't do. I, I didn't have a, a great social. Like I, I didn't go out with girls a lot. Like I had a girlfriend, but I didn't. It was very secondary to me. Um, I, I never went out. I didn't go out and drink a bunch. I didn't go out and party. I was. I. I, I felt a tremendous responsibility to my family, and I felt a responsibility to the tennis. So if you take everything else out of your life and you just have those things, it, time management becomes a little simpler, you know? I guess, but still, I mean, at age 20 to have those kinds of responsibilities and the maturity to, to deal with all of that is pretty amazing. Well, let me ask you a question. Um, when, like, how old are your parents? Now, yeah. Well, how old? How old were they when they had like when? Okay. Oh, young. They so were they, young when they had. They were, yeah. And they were born maybe in what the fifties or sixties. No, no, no. I was born in the sixties. <laughs> they were born in. My dad was. They born were born in the forties, maybe. Forty. Yeah. Forties. Yeah. Okay, the forties. My math was off. So they went through <laughs> that. That well, but they went through that end phase of World War Two then. Yeah, I mean, they didn't really, they weren't really impacted by that, like your family was. So, so they were maybe Very five, six, and by the time, by the time they were ten, twelve, it was kind of that baby boomer swing where the exactly. the economy it was taken off. Exactly. So they went they went through a really prosperous period, and and I think I I think, you know, you can say blessing or curse. Uh, probably a little of both, um, but when when you're born in the late, like in, from 1918 to 1925 or so, and you're on the heels of World War One, and then you got the Depression, and then you got World War Two coming out. They they like every conversation I ever had with my father, it, it wasn't about luxury you know, what he perceived as luxury. It was about survival. Mm-hmm. And and it's a very different, you know, most people alive in this country now, there's been 70 or 80 years of prosperity. And when the stock market dips 100 points, people freak out, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Back then, you were getting 1,000-point dips. You were getting all kind of crazy or the equivalent of 1,000-point dips, you know, you were getting mass volatility. You were getting food lines. Now, no, there's no food lines because you don't have to say this. I'll say this. A third of the country is on some sort of food assistance. You know what I mean? Like there's, and they've, yeah. they've couched it in a way now where you don't even need food stamps for the stigma of it. You just go up with a credit card-like card, and no one knows if you're paying with a credit card, a debit card, or a food stamp card. And so there's no food lines, there's no bread lines, because, <laughs> you know, it, it's all hidden. It's right. all hidden. And so so I guess, you know, I don't feel like we're getting off topic. I feel like as that rolls around into what we're talking about, when when you're raised from by, by someone who's gone through all of that, there, there really is not a, lux- a luxury-type mindset, you know? It's more of like, look, what do I need to do here? What's my responsibility to myself? What's my responsibility to my family? And let's get after it. And Andre's dad was very much like that. Right. And you applied that mindset to your tennis. You applied that mindset to your time in college. And I suspect you continue to apply that mindset to everything you undertake now. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's a natural derivative. I don't know any other way to be, Lisa. I don't know any other way to be. And and well, it and seems to have served you, you well. 
Well, um, I think it's both. I think it's served me well in a lot of areas, and I think it's cost me in other areas. You know, I think um, I've certainly had some some large disappointments, you know, and one of them, what, what we're talking about, I don't, I don't ever feel like I uh, achieved what I really wanted to as a pro. Uh, I think that's honest. Um, you can make as much money as you want, and you can you can get as much status as you want, and you can all of this kind of stuff. But in your core and in your heart, when you have something that deep that you've worked for and you want to achieve, uh, if someone says that that doesn't bother you, they're lying. They're lying because it it does bother me. Uh, there mm-hmm. there was an area that I set out to achieve certain things, and yeah, while it looks like there was a lot achieved, and maybe there was. The the ultimate goals, uh, as a pro, I feel like I fell short. And it takes time to work through that. It takes time to say, hey, you know, because um, I, think, I think a lot of tennis players deal with this. I think a lot of tennis players set out with goals and they don't realize how tough it is and they don't realize everything they're going to encounter on the way. And I, I, I know a ton of guys that you know, have dealt for many years with not achieving what they really desired to achieve. You know, it's like everything. You have this trade. And as I think back to 21, as we were talking, you know, okay, you you have you have these various responsibilities. And yes, you're mildly successful at one. You're reasonably and a little bit more successful at two. And then you're extremely successful at three. So to be more specific, I was very, very successful with our family business, right, Mm -hmm. in terms of executing the objectives. And the main objective was to make money. So that, and I knew it since I was little. So, yes, in that way, you're you're correct. Yeah, it served me well. Um, In terms of the, the tennis, I would say mildly successful. Because while the junior and the and the college was was very good and very reasonable, the pro operations were not achieved, and that was the ultimate goal from the beginning. Right. So in that in that way, it's a cost. Then from the personal business side of it, like my own businesses and and doing setting up things with in, in those arenas. I would say reasonably successful, you know, in terms of the objectives of one, you know, making money, achieving uh, a sense of a sense of achievement inside. Like I'm setting goals, and I'm achieving those goals, and I'm clear on those goals, and and they're helping me, and they're helping some people around me. So I think it kind of goes uh, the spectrum, uh, and and. To have those kind of responsibilities at 21, 